joy to the world. Silent Night The First Noel For centuries, the hymns of Christmas have carried deep and abiding meaning into the spirit of the season. They remind us of growing up. They bring our minds to the memories of the past. They prepare our hearts for this special time of year. A time when we think about our loved ones. We sing songs and share stories. We remember that holy night in Bethlehem. The herald of the angels. The bright star. The wise men. The lowly manger. The promise of God's redemption fulfilled through the birth of his son. Our savior and king. These beloved Christmas carols are more than just traditions. In this series, we will dive into the scriptural stories behind some of the most iconic Christmas hymns of today. started in our new series called Born is the King, and I am beyond excited to be up here with you. Um, during this, this past two weeks, Pastor Tim asked me in, to come into his office so we could talk about it, and he's like, hey, what do you think about kicking off our new series? And I was like, that sounds great, Pastor Tim, whatever you say, Pastor Tim. And he goes, I want you to do a specific hymn. I was like, that sounds pretty cool. He's like, I want you to pick your favorite hymn of all time, and I want you to parallel it with the Bible, look deeper into it, and so we can get a better understanding of what these original hymn writers were trying to say. And so I said, great. So then I went downstairs from his office, got on the computer, got really excited. I said, how about this one? And he says, no, absolutely not. He's like, that's not even a Christmas hymn. And I was like, oh, man, you're right. It was a Unitarian hymn, had everything to do with peace on earth and goodwill towards men, but nothing about the gospel truth. And that's exactly what we're trying to pinpoint here in this series, is that we sing so many songs come Christmas time. You know, you put on your Frank Sinatra, you put on your nice sweater, you sit in front of the fire, maybe you roast chestnuts. I don't know if anybody actually does that. I don't even know if they're good. But you sit down, you have a good time with your glass of eggnog, and you enjoy whatever B101 or K-Love or country artist is doing a rendition of your favorite Christmas hymn, and you just... See, I love Christmas. I'm starting to get into the spirit, even though I'm mourning, you know, heat <laughs> while being excited for Christmas at the same time. So Christmas time is something that I, I find near and dear to my heart. But as soon as Pastor Tim mentioned to me the fact that this hymn has nothing to do with the gospel, it really struck a chord. Is that how many times do we sing these songs every Christmas and we're like, yes, this sounds Christmassy. This is great. I'm so happy. I'm so glad it's Christmas time. But really, what is the purpose? Let's take a, a quick second to digress from here. Dominic the donkey. <laughs> Ring-a-ding-ding, hee-haw, the Italian Christmas donkey. 
All right, you could fight with all your might to say that, yeah, Jesus rode on a donkey, bro. It's irrelevant. No, no, it's absolutely not. How about this? The little drummer boy. First of all, no one has asked where his parents are. Nobody asks, where is your jacket, little drummer boy? Because apparently he's shirtless everywhere he goes. Just like, hey, do you, do you know anything? Let me ask this random lamb a question. Let me ask this. It's weird, right? And we have all these hymns like, and don't even get me started with John Lennon and his whole thing, but we have all these crazy songs that we sing every single year that actually have zero to do with the gospel truth that they're meant for. So through this series, Born as the King, I want to start and kick off this series with you guys so we can take a deeper look at what these hymn writers were actually trying to get to. Is that cool? You guys with me? All right, awesome. First, I want to tell you guys a story before we kick off. And as you can uh, probably tell, I'm kind of excited for this, but also Pastor Tim said, pick your favorite. And I did the exact opposite, and I picked something that literally scarred me for most of my high school life. I'm going to share the story with you guys. So when I was in, uh, at the end of eighth grade and I was going into ninth grade, it's a great way to start a story. I decided to join the school's Christmas choir for a presentation. Now, what we were going to do is we were going to take a medley of Christmas hymns, slam them together with weird transitions, and make it into something to start the night off with. And the only reason why I was actually doing this was because a couple of my friends were doing it and they thought it was going to be really funny, but it was actually torture for four months. So we spent our time two hours every day for four months after school learning this melody, learning this medley, and putting together, which was the most, I don't even know, voice-cracking, puberty-infested, like terrible singing that I've ever been a part of in my life. And so... Every single week we would sing and we'd have practices and, and I, I was forced to, to sing certain things. I wasn't really like fully comfortable in my vocal range to sing. And one day I decided to joke, which I always did, and decided to hit a note that was God impossible to hit just for the fun of it, right? But according to my teacher or my conductor, she thought it was the most beautiful thing that has ever reached this earth. And she goes, Noah, that was wonderful. And I knew I was screwed right there. I was like, oh, I was just joking. She goes, no, 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 that was great. I want you to, to pick a, a transition in the song. I want, you to be the, the, I want you to head that off. I want you to sing the notes that lead us into another song. And I was like, sure. And all my friends were like, dude, yeah, you're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. Right? So I'm in ninth grade. I have a terrible voice. I'm about to join this choir. And now I have to sing a transition to help everyone else in the choir get to where we're going. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. So every day we would sing to this track. And it was a track that had vocals. So I said, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll just pretend like I know how to sing this note every time. So what I decided to do was every single time the person in the song would sing, I would sing just loud enough that people could hear me but not loud enough to actually hit the note. So for four months, I faked it, and it was awesome. Up until the night of the performance. Five minutes before we go on, I think everything's great. I'm like, we're singing with the track. It's going to be awesome. Like, no one's even going to know. Everybody's going to think I'm the coolest rock star in the world. It'll be great, yeah. So five minutes before, my teacher goes, I need Hannah, I need Pablo, I need Brian, and I need Noah. I was like, what? Oh, she probably just wants to talk about, you know, like I'm wearing a nice tie. She probably just wants to talk about the tie, whatever, whatever. So I walk up, I was like, what's up? And she's like, okay, Hannah, I want you to stand in front of the microphone so that when you sing, your part is loud enough for everyone to hear. And I went, oh, no, God. And she's like, Pablo and Brian, because they had really deep voices, like, yeah, what's up? And they're like, I want you to stand in the back, and I want you, when you're part here, I want you uh, right into the microphone so we can all hear it. It'll be great. And she goes, Noah, I'm going to put you right in the middle. 
And I want you to sing loud enough into the microphone so that everyone can hear you. I was like, awesome. I'll do it. Anything for you. This would be great. And then she says, oh, I just want to remind everybody else that we're not going to be singing to the normal track that we're singing. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, oh, well, there's going to be no singing because we're the ones singing, silly. <laughs> Walks away. Right there, I was at the precipice of the rest of my life. This is it. I'm going to die. This is how I go. The rest of my high school career, gone. Everything that I've ever wanted to be, gone. I can never sing again. I can't even show my face at school. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it so good. I'm going to do it so good. And I walked out, and my friend's like, pat me on the back. He's like, dude, you're going to hit this note so good. I was like, dude, I'm going to hit this note so good. So then we're singing, and then before I know it, it's already a blur. We've started. She's swinging her hands in a way we really didn't follow. And she's going off, and she's having a grand old time while I'm literally suffering, sweating. I get this cold chill down the back of my spine. And the part is coming up. It's approaching in five seconds. I don't know how I'm thinking, singing, and panicking at the same time, but somehow I managed to do it. So I'm in this moment, and my friend's going, dude. And he's, he's cheering me on, and he's egging me on, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hit this note. It should have sounded like, joy to the world, right? Some, something like that. But it was, joy to the world, like I was in Blink-182. And it hit across the room. 350 people, I swear to you, the music stopped, everyone stopped, people stopped breathing. It was like, it echoed, and I was like, that wasn't so bad. And then it hit back, and I was like, oh my God, that was awful. <laughs> So in that moment, I learned that Joy to the World is my least favorite song of all time. And I swear I've heard Carrie Underwood sing it every year, and it still brings that moment to me where I'm like, oh, God. Because every week, people were calling me Shaggy. They're like, Scoob, all the time. And they're like, well, hey, man. And I'm like, all right, have a good one. Nice. We only had a small school anyway, so I'd walk down the hallway, and people were like, there's the guy that totally screwed up Christmas. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. But joy to the world, that's what we're talking about. This is the hymn I decided to choose, and Pastor Tim was like, go for it. But I'm so glad I chose this because through this digging deeper into it, through this understanding what this is really about, I was able to get a grasp on truly what this hymn means. And I hope that tonight and I hope that this weekend, across all campuses, that we're able to figure this out together, understand it, and most importantly, understand the most important, integral, and amazing moment that's ever happened in this universe. You guys with me? All right, so we're going to start off by talking about a man called Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is the grandfather of modern hymnody. Probably didn't know hymnody was a word, but it is. You can say it all day. People will get annoyed with you. And listen, this guy didn't just write like five Christmas songs, and we're like, yeah, he did a great job, right? He wrote 750. 750 hymns. How many of you guys know more than one? Really? Oh, I just meant like Isaac Watts. Like, he wrote Joy to the World. And, oh, 750, 749 others, I hope you, hope you knew, because we all sing them all the time. But back in the day, he was the biggest rock star of his generation. And ladies, if you're wondering, he's single, because he's been dead for 300 years. So tough luck on that one. But this guy was a stud. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was knighted. Like this guy had, had it all going well for him. And he decided to take the actual words of the Bible, translate them, and put them into 
a song, into a hymn that we would sing. But since then, we've kind of twisted it and changed it into a commodity that we sing every Christmas and then we put away. But this song has so much more power to it, so much more to it that I was shocked to find under all my embarrassment. So let's take a look at this. The first point of tonight is let earth receive her king. No, I'm not going to sing the song for you. But we're going to go through certain standards and certain parts that I find the, the most powerful and the most interesting. Let earth receive her king. The point one underneath that is Jesus didn't come to earth as an infant. He came as a king. Jesus did not come to earth as an infant. He came to earth as a king. And you're probably saying, well, no, Jesus was a baby, dude. You're wrong. Yes, he was. But the thing is about Christmas time is that every single time it rolls around, we kind of put Jesus into this infancy box where he can do absolutely nothing but be a baby. Babies are cute. But here's the thing, is that every single time Christmas rolls around, we decide to put baby Jesus. Baby Jesus is like the mascot of Christmas time, right? He's like the Easter bunny of Christmas. And I think that that's such a weird way to look at this time of year when we have a hymn that's saying, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. King. And the perspective that we have on this is so backwards and so twisted. And here's, here's the reason why. Is that because we want Jesus to be exactly what we want and how we want it. How we want him to be. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Talladega Nights. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Deer, eight pound, six ounce, dear Lord, baby Jesus. With your, your fists in your hands, don't even know a word yet. We just want to thank you, right? They do like this whole four-minute prayer session where he's like, I like to picture my Jesus in, in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says he's formal, but he also likes to party. So I like my Jesus to party. It's funny, but that's literally what we do. Well, I like my Jesus as baby Jesus. I want to pray to baby Jesus because baby Jesus is nice and sweet and doesn't do anything. But babies are naggy, right? Babies want, babies cry, babies need. And maybe you're thinking this Christmas that Jesus is the baby Jesus, and you're like, man, God is annoying, right? I don't need baby Jesus. I don't even want a baby. I don't want a kid. I want baby Jesus, right? So you focus on something else for Christmas. But for those who think about Jesus as baby Jesus, he starts to become this thing where, you know, when you have a baby in, in your hands, right, when you have a small life in your hands, whether you are the parent or not, you have an impact on this child's life in some way, shape, or form. When you're a parent, you teach a baby how to grow, how to live, how to become. It's different with Jesus because Jesus didn't show up on earth to be taught. He came as a king. See, you can put a baby on your lap and sit on a throne, right? I don't know if many of you have a throne, but bear with me. You can put Jesus on your lap. You can sit in your throne of the thing that you think is the most important in your life. Sit on the throne of your life. Sit there and hold baby Jesus and mold him into whatever you want to. But the thing is that Jesus came as a king. A king doesn't come so that he can sit beside you. He comes to take that throne from you. And here's the thing is when we put Jesus into this baby form and we keep him there and we keep him eight pounds and six ounces, we start to demean everything about what Christ came for in the first place. He is a king. And he was a king before he came to earth. He left his heavenly place next to God the Father to come to earth to be a king. David says it like this in Psalms. This is so cool. Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This verse is talking about how God is not only just king, but he's majestic. He's beautiful. He's amazing. And he's strong. 
He has great strength. He can handle anything. And it says that the world was established under him and it will not be moved. And maybe this Christmas season you're worried about something or you're stressing about, about what family is to you or how do you get through this year. Maybe you're just trying to skate through Christmas just to get to New Year so you can change yourself. But here's the thing is that Jesus as a king, no matter what happens here on this earth, it will always stay under his care. It would always stay under his reign. He has set this place up so that nothing can shake it. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it is, Jesus will still be able to reign and be king over your life no matter how hard it gets. And on the adverse side, no matter what you do, Jesus will remain king. See, we have this thing called the throne in our lives. It's I'm sitting, I'm in charge. I want to take my life into my hands. I want to do things my way. And when Jesus came as a king, he said, no, 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 no. Listen, I didn't come as a baby for you to hold me and teach me. I came here as a king to rule with majesty, with strength. And he rules before we even existed. So as we start to change our perspective on what Jesus really looks like, it starts to take a whole different image. Jesus did not come as a baby. He came as a king. And whether you believe it or not, it does not remove Christ from his throne. Point number two. Preparing room with a curse. I wanted to name this, how to prepare room with a curse for dummies. But that would seem really demeaning. But I'm also a dummy. So we're all in this together. I never understood that book. I never really got it. I never really understood the charisma behind them calling you a dummy and saying we have all the answers, fix it. So, I don't know. Here's a stanza in this song that literally has never been sung by human lips on the modern radio. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infect the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And I want you to picture that. I just like sang it like Rascal Flats. It doesn't sell. Because here's the thing, is that on our throne, on what we want, there's something that we all have, and it's called the curse. And I think it's so incredible that we, we decide to remove every bit of trace of anything that has to be against us. We sweep it under the rug during Christmas season. I'd rather sing about the Jesus that is so kind and sweet and loving, and, and he's, he's great, he's a little baby Jesus. I'm just going to forget about all the, the nasty parts. We're just going to forget that. Don't worry, Carrie Underwood, you don't have to sing that. Just sing the first stanza and the last stanza, and everybody will feel all Christmassy and happy inside. And the thing is, is that this part of the song is the most crucial and the most integral part because when we have a throne and we're sitting on it and we're living on it and we're trying to dictate how our lives work, there is a, a full gap between what we want and what God wants. And if God came as a king, he wants that throne, the one that is his, the one that is deserved. But there's this thing called the curse. As far as the curse is found, it grows and infests us. And it's a part of our lives. We're going to talk about that right now. So let's check out joy. Probably like it's a weird transition. Joy, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires, delight. What we want more than anything is to satisfy ourselves. See, when you are sitting on the throne of your own life and you're reigning, you got a lot. 
You got a lot going on. You're in control of this and that. You're in control of whatever you say and do. I'm making this decision. I want this. I want that. And you know what? I guarantee you some of you guys have bruises and scars from yesterday's debacle at any store because you want what you want and your kids want what they want and you want to get it and it's yours and it's deserved and you work hard for it and you work out for yourself so much that you beat yourself up to an absolute pulp over the fact of getting yourself well-being, success, and good fortune. But it's this desire. It's this part of who we are. We, when we have joy, it's when something that we never had before finally enters our life. Maybe it's that relationship, and you're like, oh, I just need this, and I, I desire for a relationship, and then he or she comes along and then goes, and then you lose that joy. Or maybe it's that promotion or that job or that family member that's been in your life for so long that, that finally leaves, and, and, and you've been waiting for something to fill this desire in your heart. Maybe it's just to be on top. Maybe you've grown up from a position where you've never been able to be on top, be, be on top in a business perspective, be on top and in control. And that's that desire. That's that thing inside of us that's pulling at us. But ultimately, it's a curse because as soon as what we put on the throne leaves, disintegrates, disappears, we are left unsatisfied. We have a curse, all of us. You, me, every person on this world has a curse that is holding on to us. I love how he says, no thorns infest the ground. No more let sins and sorrows grow. It's like eating at us. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our own bodies. We don't even realize it. Let's check out Philippians 1, 19 through 26. This is Paul, the apostle, talking about being joyful in the midst of being in prison. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is in the middle of prison, literally chained, no way out. And he's writing to the church of Philippi about this moment where he can say, I am filled with joy because my desires have been met. And the thing is, his desires have not been met by his situation. His desires have not been met by what he's accumulated, about, by what he wants. But the fact is, is that he can be joyful in prison because his king has come and taken the throne of his life. And see, here's, here's this, this duality that I love that Paul actually discusses is that he talks about this tear between what he wants in Christ and what his flesh wants here. And he says, it's better for me to live in my flesh and be in this body that I am in right now and live as hard as it might be. It is labor for the glory of God for your sake. See, what happens is, is that sin corrodes us so much that we start to have this duality about us. We start to want to be a good person and want to be this type of person and be the best for our families and friends. And on the other scale, we want everything to be about ourselves, what we want and how do we get it. Because we have a piece 
of this kingly nature in us. Because what we truly desire is to be on top. What we truly want is to be kings and queens of our own lives. Look at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't sin because they were hungry. <laughs> they sinned because the devil tempted them into believing that they would be like God if they ate of the fruit. It's this desire in us for ruling, for reigning. And so what happens is when Paul is talking about this, he says, my desire now that I've, I've given my life to Christ, that I'm in here, this, this situation is horrible, nothing that I can do will change it myself. I wish to be, I wish to not be here anymore. I wish to be with God because he has given me my desire. See, Paul used to be a murderer. Saul was his name. He was a persecutor and a murderer of Christians. And God met him, said, what you want, your desires and things like that, I want to shift that perspective. I want you to see what I want for your life. And Paul changes everything about himself, and then he moves on and becomes one of the greatest apostles for the Lord. Because his desires were not about himself anymore. They were about what God wanted, the king. On another perspective, check this out, is that David talks about this in Psalm 4-7. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. David is talking about, a ki he's a king. We have two different perspectives. We have somebody who came from, from nothing. He wasn't really anything special. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor. And he came to the realization that God needed to be king of his life. And then on the adverse side, we have a king himself who has everything in the world decides to say, hey, when, when there's grain and wine abounding in somebody else's vat, in somebody else's land, I can have pure joy because my desires are met by Christ. Amen. It is so important, so, so important to recognize the fact that no matter what other people in life are doing, it is different from your situation. There are people out there who are doing everything wrong. Isn't it funny we watch the news, they're like, that, that guy is so bad. Why is he getting all this stuff? Why is he able to succeed? Why is he able to get this, 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 and that? He's doing everything wrong. I know it just doesn't even seem right. Why are they succeeding? The fact is you're not supposed to worry about what everybody else is doing because they're not governed by this king. See, when you're living outside of the king's uh, view, when you're living outside his kingdom and you're living, you're living outside of his care, it doesn't matter what you're doing because you're not under his care anymore. You could be doing everything right and life is hard, but Paul even says in his own passage that it is a labor to live here. It is a labor to be a part of this. It is a labor to give up your life, to give up that throne for God. It's a labor. Point three. Actually, before we go to point three, let's check out Romans 3.23, just before we do that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. You might be a good person this year, giving all your gifts, being around family. You might want everything good, but the desires of your heart are evil. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a problem, and it's called sin. We have a curse, and it's sin. Sin is the selfish desire to have what we want above what God wants. But here we have in, a, in this hymn where he's saying, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That's the labor that Paul is talking about. It's hard to put God on the throne of your life. 
He says you have to prepare him room. Paul says it's a labor. It's hard. It's something you can't do. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sin in our life. And that's what's separating us from making that decision. Because it's hard to put yourself in the care of someone else. It's hard to be in a hospital. It's hard to be in a place where you can't do anything about it. You have to let somebody else take care of you. But you need to be there. You're in hospital for a good reason. You don't go to the hospital because you're feeling great. You know, like I just feel like sitting in a gurney for a while. You go to the hospital because you're sick. And a doctor who has all the care in the world, all the knowledge in the world, is able to be there and to guide the processes for you to get better. See, David calls God the king who is majestic and full of strength. Because he has care, he is good, he is beautiful, and he is strong. And life gets hard when you start doing things on your own. When you start putting yourself on the throne as the most important, the weight of that throne starts to fall on your shoulders. So lastly, point three, in wonders of his love. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Let's check out 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul talking again. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In our world today, it's so hard to admit that you're weak. It's about you, yourself, and I, and how, how do I stand on, on, you know, on, the, on the throne? How do I understand that I am the most powerful person in my life because I did it myself, right? Especially in New England. It's a hard place to live. You work hard. You get it done. You get the promotion. And the thing is, is that when we try to talk about our weaknesses, it completely shatters who we are. People don't care about your weaknesses. They care about your strengths, right? As soon as somebody does something wrong, we blast it all over the news, and your thoughts about that person, your understanding about that person degrades to such a level where they don't become a hero to you anymore. They don't become a, a popular figure to you anymore. You're disgusted with them. And here's the thing is that when we discuss our weaknesses, it starts to take us off the throne. Nobody wants an incapable king to rule. And when people start to see that there are weaknesses in your life, yeah, your power starts to go from, yeah, I'm, I'm the best. I got this in my hands. I control it. I'm the one who has the power here to, man, I'm not so good anymore. See, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sin. As far as the curse is found, we have it. Since Adam and Eve on, we are all infected with sin. We all have a weakness. Imagine for one second you saw your life on a news screen. So-and-so did this. How many, how many people would, would lose family, friends, people that you love and care for because they would want nothing to do with you because of how amazing you are, because of how wonderful you are? I can stand up here and say the same thing. I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine if somebody put my life on a TV screen and said, this week, Noah Aguirre did this. You guys would be blown away at the stuff that I've done in my life the stuff that we've done in our lives. It's hard to be on the throne. It's hard to be in control when we are weak. 
Because when there's a throne in your life, when there's a place of power and position, you have a lot of responsibility. Life is hard. When you leave this place, you have bills, you have your family, you have struggles, you have things like that. I've been going through one of the hardest months of my life. When I leave this place, it's hard to rely on myself because I'm not good. I'm not good enough. I'm weak. But here, Paul decides to say, if it's about talking about your weakness, you should do it because therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's the thing about joy to the world is that you're not good enough. We're weak. We need somebody who can actually do it who can actually take the weight of the world on his shoulders, who can actually go above and beyond and save us. See, the Bible talks about God being a good, good father. But not just a good father, he's a king. A king comes in and he reigns. He sees the low, he sees the high people, he sees the people who are, who are in the midst of the best parts of their lives, he sees the people who are going through the worst depths of their lives, and he reigns and he governs and he chooses and he decides and we remove him from that position in our lives because we think that we can do it better than he can. We remove him from that position in our lives because we think that we are strong enough to take it on. <laughs> I guarantee you, you're not. How many times have you been in a situation where you're looking at your life and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know who to rely on because moms, dads, family members, friends, people, bosses, coworkers will never be enough. Presidents in the office will not be enough. Governors, people you vote for, people you put your stock in will never last because as far as the curse is found, you and I are in the midst. And we are stuck, we are weak, and we need somebody who knows what he's doing to come and govern and be a king over our lives, to take the weight of the throne of our lives. When we realize our weakness, it doesn't disqualify us, it becomes our qualifier. You don't get disqualified because you're weak when God is king. Everywhere else you go, every other place you're a part of, when you're weak, gone. You can't do your job right one time, you're fired. You can't handle your family, I'm leaving you. See, when you're weak in any point of your life other than in God's kingdom, you lose. But with God as king, the moment that we recognize that we need help, we're not good enough, we need somebody to rely on, and he says, I'm here, I'm ready to govern over your life. I'm here, joy to the world. I've finally come here to govern over you, to live over you, to help you out when you need it, to see every place that you're going, and to keep you safe from this world, to handle the responsibilities of your throne. Romans 8, 38 through 39. Paul again. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is a king that will go above and beyond for you and me. He won't just, just sit on his throne and get fat and zap you with lightning when you do something wrong. See, a good king rules, covers, provides, fights for, and cares for his people. And the cool thing about God, other than anything else in this world, is that if you don't want him at all, 
You don't have to have him. See, he's a good God. He's a good king. He's never going to hunt you down and chop off your head because you don't follow him. He's never going to sit there and nag at you and poke at you and be annoying and all these things. But he's going to put people in your life that want you to come back. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're here part of this weekend because somebody wanted you to come back to church. Or, hey, maybe this is Christmas time. I'm coming back to church. Maybe you've been living on your own throne for so long that you can't handle the weight of the world anymore. And, you know, maybe there's been, you know, that aunt or that uncle or that friend or family member, even a coworker who said, hey, why don't you come to church this weekend? Why don't you be here this weekend? I don't know why. I just want to invite you. It's because God will use everyone that is in his care in his family, as a part of his kingdom, to try to get you back. But not because he's got all this power that he can zap you with. It's because he loves you. And he wants you back as a part of his family. So let's take a look at this last verse. Matthew chapter 19, 25 through 26. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can then be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Again, give up your throne. Give up. It's the only time someone will ever tell you to give up. (laughs) Give it up. It's heavy. Give it up. Someone else can take it. See, the thing about God is that he's so good and he's so amazing and so wonderful, as both um, David and both Paul have said, is that he will carry the weight and the responsibility of your life. Maybe you're going through one of the hardest times you've ever faced. Maybe Christmas time is a bad time for you. Maybe there's been loss. Maybe there's been hardship in your family. Maybe you've, you've tried your best to be everything that you wanted to be and it has failed you. There's a lot of weight when you sit on a throne when you're trying to rule your own life. I can't do it, and every single day I pray to God that I can get some strength to get through these times. Give up your throne. You don't have to sit on it. Our inner desires want us to. Part of who we are wants us to. But when we give up our throne, there's true freedom. Because we don't have to handle the world anymore. We have a God who did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you've already been saved before. Maybe this is just a refresher for you to remember that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how tough things are, no matter how much this pushing and prodding and prying in your life is, that God still reigns. He's still on the throne. Don't give up hope. Or maybe you've been living this whole year and you're just waiting for a new chance to restart yourself. This is it. Give up your throne. Give up that responsibility because the wages of sin is death. We are destined to die in our sin. Nobody asks for a curse, but we are cursed. Nobody asks to be completely lost and and, and be at their worst. This world is a tough place because of sin and we all have it. And when this king is coming, it is pure joy. It is the fact that our true desire is to have God take our place in which he did through Jesus Christ. He took our place on that cross 2,000 years ago so that we can walk away from our sin. We can walk away from the guilt of not being good enough. We can admit our weakness and finally be free. So maybe this Christmas season is your chance to be free, to experience 
true joy to the world that desperately needed a savior.